Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. A call for adequate mental health services for every citizen in the country. Podcaster and author Blind Boy joins us live from Limerick to talk about his lockdown experience, how the pandemic is impacting on the nation's well-being, and what more he thinks the government should do for mental health provision in Ireland. On our first panel tonight is GP and mental health expert Dr Harry Barry and Fine Gael TD Jennifer Carroll McNeil. Plus, four people set to be prosecuted for their alleged roles in organising the so-called Golfgate dinner. We'll have the latest. A draft plan for the Leaving Certificate, but still no clarity in school reopening. We'll hear from one Leaving Cert student. And later, former Monaghan footballer Dick Clerken will be here telling us why we need to consider reopening society as soon as the vulnerable are vaccinated. Get in touch via Twitter with the hashtag TonightVMTV. Our first guest, the podcaster and author Blind Boy, has been central in getting people, especially young men, to open up about mental health issues. Blind Boy, you've also been writing and talking about suffering from anxiety, depression and agoraphobia. So then, how is the COVID-19 lockdown affecting you? Um, for me, what I, do, what I do, Matt, is... Like, I've been dealing with lockdown now for a year, like everyone else has. And... What I kind of do, I don't assess my mental health under, because we're in exceptional circumstances, I wouldn't be assessing my mental health based on if, if the pandemic wasn't here, if you get me. Like, currently, like, I, I, I accept the fact a, a bad thing is happening right now, okay? I can't live my life with freedom. Um, I'm frightened a lot of the time. I'm sad. I'm not achieving my goals. So it's appropriate, an appropriate response to this is for me to feel upset and afraid and not as happy as I'd normally be. So I kind of, I kind of accept that. And to be honest, I'm, I'm doing okay. I wouldn't say that right now I'm experiencing poor mental health, even though I'm sad and upset and frightened. These are appropriate responses to a sad, upsetting and frightening situation. And what I do every day, I just give myself one goal and that goal is to cope. It's as simple as that. Every day I say to myself, the only thing I expect of myself today is to cope. And I cope by trying to achieve meaning. I try and live in a meaningful way day to day. And for me, living with meaning means preparing a nice meal for myself, exercising, trying to live as, as much as possible in, in the present moment. And even if I'm drinking a cup of tea or washing the dishes, that I make sure I'm doing it in a present, meaningful fashion and not kind of not kind of uh, dwelling on, on excessive negativity or excessive fear, if you get me. But could it be blind by that you're able to cope because of your previous experiences of overcoming anxiety 
and depression and agoraphobia, that you learnt the coping mechanisms, but that unfortunately what's happening over the last year to many people is unexpected and different and they haven't got those mechanisms practised. Absolutely. I am someone, I received counselling when I was in college. I did three years of counselling. I use cognitive behaviour therapy as part of my day-to-day -day mental health regime. I use existential psychology. I have quite a lot of tools that I use on a day-to-day -day basis to allow me to cope. And I have these because I, I was lucky enough to access counselling for free when I was in college 10 years ago. So I have tools that other people don't have, we'll say. And I'm still upset, I'm still frightened, but these tools allow me to cope. And by coping, it means that I'm not experiencing ex excessively poor mental health. I'm still able to live my life with a degree of meaning under the circumstances. But Blind Boy, I wonder then, you had the opportunity and the access a decade ago in different circumstances. I wonder how mm -hmm. many people are there out there now who desperately do want help, who would look for help, but it just isn't available to them. Now it's simply not available. When, when I was in college, there wasn't huge waiting lists to see the college counsellor. I was actually able to access the counsellor, receive cognitive behaviour therapy, overcome anxiety, agoraphobia, depression. And I'm still an anxious person. I'm still, like one of the toughest things for me with this pandemic is behaviours, when I had very, very poor mental health, very poor mental health, I used to be scared to leave my house. I used to be frightened of other people. I used to be scared of germs and door handles. And this is how I used to behave when I had poor mental health. But now this is an appropriate way for me to behave because there's a pandemic. And that's very difficult for me because it's reminding me of what my life was like when I suffered from extreme anxiety and agoraphobia. The pandemic is reminding me of that. So that's quite triggering for me. It's bringing back old behaviours, but these old behaviours now are necessary. If I'm in the supermarket, I should be cautious and afraid of other people for the sake of safety. I should be washing my hands a lot and being thinking about germs. Under normal circumstances, for me, that meant I was suffering from very poor mental health. So how are you going to be able to adapt again in the future? when we return to some semblance of normality? Again, look, what I've learned with mental health over the years, what I do every single day, Matt, I accept what are called the givens of existence. And the givens of human existence are suffering, pain, disappointment, rejection, sadness. These are unavoidable facets of the tapestry of human existence. This is what happens when you exist. And these negative things are almost the price that you get, that you pay for love and fun and crack. So I just accept on a day, right now we're suffering. Life contains suffering. And right now, collectively, we're all suffering because there's a pandemic. And I accept this. And I recognize too, I have no control over a global pandemic. I have no control over restrictions, over a virus. So what do I do instead? I focus on what I do, I can control. And what I have full control over is how I respond to these things. I can control my attitude towards lockdown, my attitude towards coronavirus. And that just gives me a little sense of meaning. So when we do reopen into society, I'll just remind myself every day, suffering is part of reality and I will flexibly cope with whatever life throws at me. And I'll try and work with it rather than react to it, if you get me. 
Well, I'm by, I think for an awful lot of people of all age groups, and this isn't just something that applies to older people as maybe we've spoken about a lot, but a lot of people are suffering from isolation. I mean, for mm -hmm. you, I mean, as you recovered over the last decade or so, how important was the issue of social interaction for you and how much are you missing that now, even being able to perform in front of crowds? Like, so I'm, I'm quite an introverted person, so my comfort zone is by myself. However, I do enjoy extroverted activities. I, I miss the spontaneity of human interaction. What I really miss at the moment is the complex empathy that's required to read another's, another person's facial expressions. Now, I know I wear a mask all the time, but when I'm in a supermarket, I can't remember what it's like to re read the lines of a stranger's mouth because it's covered in a mask, you know? And communication is difficult and speaking with human beings now, it's always underpinned with fear. So what I'd love to do, I'd love to spontaneously just meet someone I hadn't seen in ages and go for a coffee with them. The spontaneity of life, the chaos of existence, I don't have that right now. And that's, that's having a detrimental effect on my, my creativity, my capacity to write and create because I'm not receiving any external stimulus into my brain in which to respond creatively, you know? But Blind Boy, I suggest you actually are doing well in the sense we can see there on the screen, you've set up your studio for doing work. You're doing these podcasts yeah. and you're managing to speak to all sorts of people in the podcast and drawing out stories from them, which must be a benefit to them and to you as well and to all of the listeners. Well, what, what I did, like, I'm an, I'm an artist and I'm a live entertainer, so my industry has been completely devastated by this pandemic. I haven't done a gig in a year. And when this happened, I had two choices. It's, I, I, how do I survive in this? So what I did is I, I did what I could to set up a live streaming setup. So I have a full studio here and I stream online a couple of times a week and I also do my podcast. And then I earn a living through a thing called Patreon because my gigs are taken away, my live income is taken away, so is my television work. But what I do is I, I, I earn a living through Patreon. But the arts industry in general, people who are like, it's not just artists, it's people who work behind the scenes, people who work in theatres, doing sound, doing lights. These people right now have no access to employment whatsoever. And people who work in backstage at things, they've spent their entire lives working towards this career and now it's gone. So. The arts right now is in a, in a very poor situation. It's in a very bad situation that this industry has been devastated. One last one for you, blind boy. And what about mental health supports from the state? Because is it a question of extra investment and money? But even if the money is available, are there actually all the people there with the, with the qualifications to actually provide the supports that are needed? So what I would say regarding the, the mental health services in Ireland, they're not adequate and they haven't been adequate for a long time. What we, right now, we, we've, we've been in a state of crisis for a long time. And we, when you have a crisis, the government now must react to a crisis. You must have a reactive response to a crisis. So what I'd like to see is a reactive response and then also a proactive response. And a proactive response is, what are you teaching kids about emotions, self-help, psychology at, at a very early age? And then that's the proactive approach. approach. And then reactive is what do you do right now to respond to the mental health crisis, which is a mental health pandemic that we've been dealing with for more than a decade. I would like to see an Ireland where anybody can access the mental health services that they need 
regardless of how much money they have. That I, want, I, I don't think that's too much to ask. Like I said, suffering is a given of human existence. To exist means to suffer. So, and mental health, having poor mental health is a normal part of being alive. So therefore, you should, everybody should have equal access to services and the government needs to work on how to make that happen. I don't know how they're going to make that happen, but that's what I'd like to see. That's my utopian vision, if you get me, Matt. Brian Boyce, thank you for joining us and look after yourself, thank you. will you? Yart. Joining us on the panel, Jennifer Carroll McNeil from the TD and also Dr. Harry Barry, a GP and mental health expert. Jennifer, I'm going to start with you because the facilities available to people. Apparently we have 10,000 people awaiting primary care psychological services, including 2,000 children. Isn't that actually not just bad for those people involved, but bad for society? It's bad for everybody. And mental health is much more difficult to deal with than physical health. You can break your leg and it can take six months to a year to recover. But if you have to wait six months to a year or two years to get a diagnosis for mental health before you start getting the appropriate therapies that you need to try to recover from that, it can disrupt your life for many, many years before you you can get that in a way under control in some way and managed on a day-to-day -day basis like Blind Boy, like Blind Boy was talking about. Um, so you've this, given us a diagnosis, so give us the solution. Well, the in relation to the, the pandemic, you know, he's right. It's a reactive and proactive thing. Right now, we've provided an extra, the, the Mind Me service, for example, which is providing te tele telephone and video communications and counselling services, is it, it still has capacity. There is still therapy services there for people who want to use it. But we have to be proactive in two ways actually it's not just about you know helping young people develop and coping mechanisms what the world health organization are saying to us and what we're planning for is that there's a lot of people who have at this present time have not realized that they have mental health issues that it will come out after the pandemic that the delayed reaction to the trauma that they've experienced whether that's been through illness or, or bereavement losing a job or some other traumatic experience or a hangover from the social isolation that that can manifest itself later so we're planning for that we're in planning to put those supports in pardon me in what way are you planning we're putting in a, a post-pandemic psychosocial series of measures the hse published their document on that i think at the beginning of this week well what does that mean when it comes to the amount of people who will be offering the services, yeah. the amount of money that will go into it and the amount of time it will take before people are able to access those so services. Part of that was done in budget 20, in the, in the last budget and there was 50 million put in for that so we're going to have 153 extra people allocated based on waiting lists, 29 of whom are dedicated especially to child and adolescent mental health services. Now we needed those additional supports anyway and we before probably need more. So that not a tiny and, number? And we probably need more but 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 that is that is there um, to, to try to provide supports. Harry Barry, what do you make of those numbers? 153 <coughs> extra people to deal with the post-pandemic deluge? Well, you see, um, I, I think we have to start, Matt, with, with, with the basic, what's the difference between emotional distress or mental distress emotion, and really serious mental illness? I think the real problem is that the whole system in Ireland, the whole mental health system is set up really basically to deal with serious mental illness like psychosis, bipolar disorder, really serious illness. But the vast majority of people who are getting into trouble, including people who are taking their own lives by suicide, by the way, are, is due to emotional distress. And emotional distress is, is a combination of some of the following things, life crisis situations, plus or minus anxiety, uh, depression, or maybe toxic stress, severe stress. And I think... Um, I think Blind Boy gave a wonderful example there. He wasn't actually mentally ill. He was extremely emotionally distressed. 
from very simple conditions like panic attacks, uh, agoraphobia, which are very, very treatable with very simple CBT techniques if they're got early and in time. Now, I think we have to clearly distinguish what's going on at the moment. Uh, what I have so many people writing down at the moment, it's the situation that's abnormal, not us. Because so many people think that they're not coping, that it's... But actually... But sorry, they, how quickly will they bounce back? When things start returning to normal, how many of those people will bounce back quickly? I, I think or how they, many have gone through a sort of a trauma? Yeah, I, I think, there, I think there's a massive post-traumatic stress disorder syndrome coming down the track for many, many people. Uh, who've experienced all the terrible things that COVID has brought with it between deaths and grief and losing jobs and all the rest of it. But I, I, I still come back to, it will always come back to very simple things like anxiety, depression, uh, PTSD symptoms, which are very similar to anxiety symptoms. But then is that something that the state can actually jump in and help provide services? Well, to I, 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 I have now, to be honest, for a decade had a very different view. I'm kind of on Blind Boy's side here. I, I think he's got the right idea. Because if we're going to pour, you know, absolutely all our reserves into, say, the mental health teams, I mean, I, to be honest, they have to be done properly. People are crying out from one end of the country to the other for proper mental health teams to deal with genuinely, seriously mentally ill uh, people. But there is an, an enormous number of people, many of them young people, like 50% of all cases of depression for the first time will present between 15 and 25. Okay, but hold on, it this just brings up a very important point. I mean, we're having a very serious restrictions on our liberties at present for what's regarded as a very good public health reason to stop the spread of COVID-19, the sickness that develops to keep the hospitals from being swamped. But is there a danger that in doing that, that we may be overdoing the restrictions in a way that is going to negatively impact on many people's mental health for years to come. I, th I, think it's, it's, I think it's one of the unfortunate consequences of something that the public health people feel they have to do. But I, I keep coming back to this. Sorry, an unfortunate consequence, but is it a necessary consequence? Well, I think... Is, I th I think is the lockdown the right thing? I think, that that's, I, I think that's happening? a totally different discussion. And I think what that does, Matt, it pulls us off from what Brian Blind Boy is trying to tell us. He's trying to say, let's leave COVID out of this. Before we ever went into COVID, we had a massive problem of emotion distress in this country. And I, I guarantee you, there are people listening to me tonight, and I have talked to some people who are so emotionally distressed that they're thinking of taking their own lives. And, and because they're, maybe they're suffering from incredible panic attacks, phobias, uh, maybe they're suffering from bouts of clinical depression. They don't know what they are, for example, how many young people are going through. I've talked to young people who actually, for, maybe for the first time, are actually admitting this is depression. You know, I, when, when I'm suddenly, I, I, I can't sleep, I can't eat, I, I can't concentrate, and my mood is down. would be Leaving Cert students, for example, who well, today have got a degree of certainty as to what happened, and also college students who haven't been Well, we know, for, we know, for example, that as I said, 50% of all cases of, of depression represent for the first time between 15 and 25. And I see many of them in college uh, students who arrive in college for the first time hit all the, the vagaries of college, even when things are absolutely normal and because of the stress of that struggle. Now, college is brilliantly set up to help in terms of counselling service. It's very, very well organised, actually, college. Even in lockdown mode? Yes, uh, well, they're doing the best they can in lockdown mode. But, uh, but the rest of society is really struggling. I mean, you ask any parent, how many parents, and I guarantee you, parents all over this country will agree with me, when their children are presenting with significant anxiety, when their children are self-harming, when their children are totally distressed, maybe very down, they don't know where to go. 
they're literally they're, they're, they're heading down to their GP. Their GP is, is, is confined really to very simple primary care services or back to the same old mental health team, which is not set up for this uh, type of situation at all. And I, I remember talking to the Joint Committee on Mental Health um, for the Future of Mental Health, and my suggestion was that we create a national psychotherapy service which would be run by properly qualified CBT-trained therapists, which would be freely available to every member of this country, which would be funded by the state, and uh, that would be easily accessible within a 24-hour period for anybody in trouble. Now, I guarantee you, if England has a similar type of service, and if we had something like this in this country, we wouldn't have... What do we have now? We have... It's actually a disgrace. We have a great organisation like Pieta House who is taking on board all of these emotional stress situations. Why? Because there isn't really a proper... There isn't really anywhere else for people to go. And if people don't believe me, uh, then go out into the community, ask people in real life... What are their experiences? Talk to the guidance counsellors in this country okay. who actually are really they are maybe doing a wonderful job of, of, keeping, of keeping this... Well, I want to go back to Jennifer on this, because, Jennifer, I know that, with good reason, Harry says this is an issue that was there ever before we had COVID, but it's been exacerbated by COVID. Would you have any concerns that what we're doing in relation to dealing with the COVID issue is actually making the mental health situation worse? Yes, I do. Yes, and we've been aware of that risk throughout it. And that has been the balance as, as many as part of any, lots of other balances about the lockdowns and opening and closing and how much people can interact. That was part of the motivation as much as we, you know, got things wrong, not knowing about the new variant and everything else. But that was part of the motivation around Christmas and the need for people to connect emotionally, for people wanting to come home. All of those were emotional responses to having been separated. And this is part of, the, this is very much part of the thinking. I remember on the COVID committee, step away from that emotional distress point just for a moment, but just on the reaction from some of the nurses, the healthcare workers, people who had experienced COVID and what they had experienced and, and the trauma side of things as well. So I mean, we absolutely see this. This is this is a big issue. It's a it's a big issue anyway, as you say. And that system in the United Kingdom uh, the, where you can access um, psychotherapy services through the NHS, that's good. You know, it's, it's not a perfect system, but it's certainly better than what we have. And that that's what I'm saying. That quick access to talk to somebody in a meaningful way and get a diagnosis or not and just realise what you have or what you don't have at the earliest possible stage and find ways to manage that and cope with that is really important. Okay, Dr. Mm -hmm. Harry Barry Blindboy gave us some great examples of how he looks after himself. Just before we finish this section, moving away from what you want the government to do, if there's going to be a slowness in getting help, what would you say to our viewers that they should be doing to help themselves where possible? Well, there's some, uh, he, gave, he gave some great bits of advice there, actually. He talked about the basics. We should have a structure in our everyday. He has a structure. We should make sure we're getting enough sleep. We should make sure that we're not uh, relying on alcohol. Cut out alcohol Monday to Friday. We should be exercising as much as possible, at least 30 minutes every day. We should be trying to eat properly. We should be limiting our technology to, to the absolute limit. We should be shutting out down negative news feeds, which are, uh, which are destroying us. And I, I would love to see some resilience exercises coming in. Um, for example, there's a great exercise, for example, uh, uh, for control and anxiety. There's another great one called flooding that deals with panic attacks. I, I would love to see flooding techniques taught to all children in this country. Do you know what I mean? And, and many of them would not be self-harming because of panic attacks, for example. And phobias we could clear very quickly as well. So 
very simple techniques. We, we just need to add them in emotion resilient techniques. That's the way forward. Very good. If you have been affected by any of the issues raised in tonight's discussion, emotional support is available on these confidential 24-hour free national helplines. AWARE, 1800 80 48 48. Pieta, 1800 247 247. And the Samaritans at 116 123. So we're going to leave it there for part one. Our thanks to Dr. Harry Barry for being with us. Jennifer Carl McNeil is staying with us. And after the break, what now for the leaving certificate? As draft proposals give an option of exams and calculated grades, we'll have reaction, including that of a leaving cert student. Welcome back. Well, four people are set to be prosecuted for their alleged roles in organising the so-called Golfgate Dinner for the Eructus Golf Society last August. Financhi in Ireland, editor with the Independent.ie, joins us via Skype. What more can you tell us about this, Finan? So, Matt, that dinner took place uh, six months ago this Friday and on foot of the, the revelations, uh, first bearing in the Irish Examiner and then subsequently across the media and the, the outrage that there was within the political system and within the public realm, the Gardaí did investigate that. Uh, that involved interviewing uh, a lot of the people in attendance and obviously those who organised it. They submitted a file to the DPP last month and the Director of Public Prosecutions has now come back and said that four individuals uh, should be prosecuted uh, on foot of their role in the organisation uh, of that event. So the summonses have been lodged with the district court and those four individuals uh, will appear before the, the, the district court at a, at a date later to be determined. What's central to this uh, prosecution will be, was there a breach of the, the regulations which were set down uh, in law at the time under the Health Act of 1947 as amended last year uh, during, the, during the, the emergency period of, of the pandemic that basically said only maximum of 50 people uh, attending any event. Uh, there was 80 at this dinner. They were divided between the, the two rooms. Uh, and that's how the organizers said that they stayed within the regulations. The night before the dinner happened, the government had agreed that that limit of 50 people would actually be dragged down quite dramatically down to six. However, that hadn't come into uh, effect uh, at, at that point in terms of legislation. So we are looking at, did they breach the, the regulations that were in place by having 80 people divided between uh, two rooms? Amongst the, the individuals who are being prosecuted in this case are the, the former Fianna Fáil TD and Senator Tony Cassidy and the independent TD uh, for Galway West, Noel Grealish. Now, they were respectively the president and the captain of the now disbanded uh, Arachnus Golf Society. The two other individuals are, are not public figures, but they were also involved uh, okay. in the organisation of that event. We'll see how it all plays out. Thank you very much for joining us, Fanon Sheehan yep. from independent.ie. Now, the Finnegale TD, Jennifer Carroll McNeil, has stayed with us. We're also joined by Rose Conway Walsh of Sinn Fein. Now, the Leaving Cert draft plan was outlined today, allowing for both exams and calculated grades for this year's 60,000 or so Leaving Cert students. But does this clarify matters? Because we're joined now via Skype by Leaving Cert student Amy McLaughlin. 
Amy, we're hearing tonight that the trade unions, the ASTI and TUI, have serious concerns about what is being proposed. But what do you and what do other Leaving Cert students make of what was announced today? Well, good evening, Matt. And I'd first of all like to say thanks so much for having me. I have to say this evening, the overwhelming feeling is relief. We asked for clarity and we asked for choice and we asked for an answer. And after six weeks of waiting anxiously, we finally have an answer. And I think irrespective of if people are happy or unhappy or just don't really know how to feel about what the announcement was today, we are all delighted to have an answer. Now that answer, there's a little bit of confusion as to how calculated grades will actually be put into place and what you would know before you went to go and sit the exams in June, if that's what people opt for. Are the calculated grades likely to be seen by people as a sort of an insurance policy if the exams don't go well in June? I think at the moment people are just overly all confused because there's very little detail with the announcement that we got today. We were told we could either opt for predicted grades, opt for a final exam or opt for a mix of both. And at the moment, that's all that we know. I think when it comes to the calculated grades, people would like to know what they will consist of. Will our practicals and orals be involved? What work is our past work going to be involved? And I think once we receive more clarity on the predicted grades, then people will be able to determine which option they go with. Stay with us, Amy. Jennifer Carl McNeil, I don't think anyone's going to say that Norma Foley's going to get a H1 for her handling of this particular episode. But is she even at the pass rate yet, given that there still is considerable confusion as to what is actually involved here, and given that the teachers' unions do not seem to be on side? Well, I think she's spent the last number of weeks trying to talk to everybody, including the students, uh, and being led by the students and the sort of choice that they wanted to have. What she's come out and discussed today gives them that choice and it gives, as you say, a sort of an insurance model, an ability to do two different systems and get the best outcome for that student, get the best result for them. So it's, you know, I viewed today certainly as progress. I note that the, the unions this evening have expressed concerns. I understand that that's part of what the discussion was about, um, about allaying concerns about how calculated grades are put together, about the class rankings and how they're published or not published. And there's no question there's more work to do by the Department of Education for providing clarity for students, but also providing these sort of certainties for teachers. But we are going to have to get to a point where an exam system works for students. Now, we're getting to that earlier this year than last year. But, you know, we are going to have to make sure that, that we can get through the Leaving Cert. And there's been a lot of work put in. And I'd like to, you know, I'd, I'd hope for everybody that this, that this goes ahead the way, we, the way we're looking at it. Rose, would you regard this as been significant progress that's been made today? Well, I do think it's significant. And I think it's a, an indictment of... Um, the, the campaign that's been led by students, uh, I think it is a win for, for them. There is some clarity brought uh, to, to the situation today. I think they have been through an excruciating time. And I know you talked in the first part of your programme about mental health and the anxiety, the unnecessary anxiety that has been put upon them because there wasn't a plan B in that situation. So now we have some clarity. Uh, we'll look for the timetable tomorrow to see what's in that. I think there's a number of things that would concern me. And I suppose the first one being in terms of 
the predicted grades not being available before the results of that not being available before the exam so that some students may feel pressured into that. I would have liked to have seen Simon Harris come out today as well to say about the extra places that are available for the pressure subjects like the subjects within uh, medicine like biology and, and chemistry in terms of places onto third level and further education and onto the workplace. So there's an awful lot yet to be done, but I, I welcome this certainty. And we've always asked for choice. But what teachers be, though? Because if the teachers' unions say they're not happy, they're going to be central to the distribution of any predicted grades and also to the marking of any exam papers when they are sat in June. Now, how much sympathy do you have with the position of the teachers that it's going to be much harder to do calculated grades this year than it would have been last year. Absolutely, there's challenges there and I do want to take the opportunity to thank the teachers for the great work that they've been doing. Uh, but I And obviously they play a crucial role in this and I hope that uh, things can be agreed and sorted out uh, uh, with them over the, over the coming days. I mean, this should have happened already. You know, but um, there isn't a perfect solution to this. But I think in working together, yeah, we haven't had a normal year. And I take it in terms of what the teachers are saying in not having materials there that they may have had for last year and being able to do assessments. But I still think it can be done. I think we need to be watchful in terms of any algorithm being used this year or the mistakes that were made last year being made. Jennifer, beaten. there is another issue which the teachers were rightly fed up about last year, and that was the publication of the class rankings, because yes. that left them in a very vulnerable position with former pupils and parents. I mean, do you understand why they might be reluctant to get caught like that again? Well, that's what I, that's what I just said, actually, Matt. That was one of the concerns that, that, I, that I mentioned that I know that they're concerned about. So they are trying to work through all of those things to make sure those things don't happen. Last year was difficult for everyone, but a lot of students moved forward into the next stage of their life, whether that's further education or something else. Simon Harris was able to get the funding from government to create a lot of additional spaces. And I know he didn't come out today. Today was about the Leaving Cert. But in speaking with him this evening, myself, I know that that's what he's working on for this year as well. 50% of people tend to get their first choice in the CAO system. That happened last year as well. There are thereabouts. 20,000 appeals, and, uh, Jennifer. Sorry. They were put through, sorry. you know, they really were put through the mill last sorry. year and an and awful lot of people didn't sorry, just, get the choices. And, you know? second and, and that happened that happened there, thereabouts last year. And that that's what we're hoping will this year. 80% of people tend to get their top one of their top three choices. So you know, an enormous number of students did move through. There were difficulties with appeals, there's no question. But we need to put in, make sure that there's the same space in universities this year as Simon Harris was able to secure last year. Sorry. Those resources need to be put into the universities. We know we have chronic, un, chronic underfunding in our third level institutions. That has to be made up. But we need the places as well in the subjects where there's shortages, as I said before, in terms of medicine. I mean, we need, we need to be upskilling. We need to be providing the workers that are necessary for our health service. And we're not doing that. I'm concerned that even work in terms of labs, in terms of extra capacity within the universities, the extra recruitment of tutors that's needed uh, for the extra places that are needed. All of those things, yes. I think, well, need to be tackled. To Amy. I want to go back to Amy, uh, who has been waiting patiently. Uh, what do you make of the situation going into third level? Because what have you heard as well from maybe friends who did progress, having done the 2020 Leaving Cert, as to how things have worked out for them? And what does it make you fear for your own ability to get to third level? I have to say, overall, I think it was certainly a mixed bag. There was a lot of people quite happy with their results, a lot of people kind of in the middle of the road and a lot of people very disappointed. But like both of our, our other conversations here, 
they both made the point that people have moved on. We all can keep moving, but I don't think that keeping on moving should be our only resort here. I think we need a fair and inclusive system that allows everybody a fair and inclusive chance to go to college because at the end of the day, that's what most of us want. And I think that fair and inclusive choice needs to be there. Amy, are you looking forward to getting back into the classroom from the 1st of March, as has been indicated, is likely for Leaving Cert students? That's another difficult question. Um, it was reported in The Independent this morning, and I don't know if anybody else has read it, but this new variant, students from the ages of 16 to 18 are actually in the second category of most infections between November to February, which is just behind our healthcare workers. Um, as somebody who has elderly grandparents, and I know that I'm very privileged to still have my grandparents with me, I'm very worried of bringing anything home to that could possibly infect them. And I know for our teachers as well, a lot of them are in vulnerable positions. They have vulnerable kids. They have vulnerable parents that they're looking after. And I think the decision around returning to school needs to be made very carefully because we don't want to be in this same position in May that we're in now. Okay, so Jennifer, if we have a very cautious and conservative approach been taken to the loosening of restrictions, how is it safe for the schools to go back on the 1st of March? The schools are the only thing that would be considered to, 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 to be reopened as far as I can see it in March with priority for Leaving Cert students because of the Leaving Cert and priority and priority for those very young children for two reasons. One, they're much, it's much less infectious at that stage and two, they have needs uh, just as much as the Leaving Certs to get back, a lot of whom have spent but a big chunk a of life. is it safe? The, everything is a risk. That's the difficulty with what we're doing, Matt. Everything that we're doing with a risk, not just as people mixing, in, 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 the older students mix yeah. in classrooms. I should be happy for those moving. students to go back. Well, it's more of a risk when you don't provide the proper PPE to schools or when you don't make provision in there for very high-risk teachers and the other provisions that but are needed within the schools. But the European Health Authorities are saying I think it's you can safe. Reduce, if NEFIT says it's yeah, safe, would you yeah. go along with that? Yes, but I think you need to reduce the risks and I think there's things that need to be put in there immediately by the government uh, for schools to ensure that that happens. Everybody wants the children back to school. Thank you very much. We leave it there for part two. Our thanks to Amy McLaughlin and Rose Conway-Walsh. Jennifer Karen McNeil will stay with us. And after the break, we'll be joined by former Monaghan footballer Dick Clerken and why he thinks we need to reopen society when the vulnerable have been vaccinated. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG.
Welcome back. Jennifer Carl McNeil, the Fine Gael TD Estate with us. We're also joined by Dick Clark, a management consultant and member of the GA COVID Advisory Committee. Dick, you've been tweeting about the need to open up once the vulnerable are vaccinated. Expand upon that in more than 280 characters. Yeah, no, I suppose it's, it's more to have the conversation around it, Mass. Like, I, I, as I say, I'm a management consultant. I work in the north and the south, living in Monaghan. So from the outset around this, I've had no choice but to have a very balanced view on everything in terms of the, the restrictions needed to protect the most vulnerable, which we've all done, I think, relatively well. And I'm very conscious of that myself with my own parents and in-laws. Um, but also the balance on society. I'm like a parent, first and foremost, three, three young kids. And, you know, I've, I've felt what everyone else has over the last number of weeks. So there always has been a balance in my mind in terms of how we progress through this. And so I'm keeping an eye on what's happening and will start to come into the conversation over the next few weeks in terms of the UK and Northern Ireland and their approach because they are further down the tracks in vaccination. And as we speak in London, there is a, a groundswell of, of, of uh, discussions around that exact principle that once the vulnerable, the, 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 the demographic in society that all of the restrictions have been in place to protect are vaccinated, it's very difficult to justify extending the lockdowns. And that's happening now at the minute. And it'll be very interesting to see next week when Boris Johnson releases his uh, recovery plan, because what will then happen is that the North Northern Ireland, in all likelihood, in a few weeks or possibly months' time, um, will be further down the tracks in terms of reopening. And you're going to be back into this situation of a North versus South. And I just think that's going to be a very Are difficult you scenario. then that because we'll be getting the living with COVID plan from our government next week, we're already getting all the indications that it's going to remain cautious and conservative, maintain restrictions for at least another month or so, yeah. and possibly longer, that we could really be at odds and what's going on in the two jurisdictions? Yeah, I think, and based on on, on the, the conversations, yes, you have to assume that. And that's that's basically what we've been hearing so far. And even just last night, Leo Varadkar intimated such that, you know, most of our restrictions will last into the summer and beyond. Whereas in the minute in the UK and Northern Ireland by extension will be much sooner. And I think that's going to pose a huge challenge for the government to try and keep people going with us and trying to maintain the restrictions when they look at um, those in the north, especially when our own vaccination programme be rolled out, the most vulnerable will be protected largely. So we, we and it's, we've, we've done so well so far, Matt, by bringing people so with what's us. What's your definition of the most vulnerable? Well, it's, it's, the, it's the government's definition. So the governments have their own definitions in terms of priority grouping. So so the UK have basically said the top nine uh, categories, which basically accounts for, you know, 50% there, thereabouts. And they're even going shorter than that, the top five categories. Like the statistics are there and plain to see, Matt, you know, 90, over 90% of the serious illnesses and fatalities, mortalities are linked to less than 15% of the population. Okay. And that has driven policy to date. And I think that should continue to drive policy as we try to safely come out of this. Jennifer, how much is that going to force the government's hand? Maybe at the moment, because of what happened at Christmas, there isn't the clamour to open things up again. But if we keep having discussions on people's mental health, and then if we keep hearing, well, the vaccinations have been rolled out, but you still can't go on the summer holidays, not just abroad, but Pascal Donoghue intimated, there's no guarantee you'll be able to have a summer holiday in Ireland. Are people going to continue to adhere to the restrictions if they feel that perhaps they're unfair? I think they, they may if they feel they're unfair. And I suppose what we have to look at is, is, is what are we doing relative to what we need to do? There are elements of the UK's experience over the last 12 months that I admire, but they're greatly outweighed by those that I do not admire. And so I don't take it as a straight comparator. 
we have to get our vaccinated. We are under a different regime with European Medicines Agency and, you know, our vaccine program is slower as a consequence, but it is coming. And those vaccines, you know, we're looking at a fourth one um, being approved potentially in March. We also have to see then what the effect of that is. Now, the data from Israel this week is extremely encouraging that there's a 94% reduction in symptomatic COVID-19 infection with the co cohort that have been vaccinated. So that's really encouraging, but that's just one piece of data and we need to see how far that goes. So look, we'll see this over the next number of months. You're right, it's difficult mm. to keep people with you when it, when life has been so hard. Um, but Neffet as well have observed that in this third lockdown, that level of compliance has persisted Persisted longer because people have seen the relative need and to I, do and that. And I agree. And, I'm, and I'm, it is yeah. hard. And I, I'm certainly not si sitting here saying that the government have done a bad job. The exact opposite. And you compare how we ultimately have performed in terms of cases, in terms of fatalities, much better than the UK. My point is, Matt, that we need to keep people bringing people with us and. Once that conversation starts to happen, and it will happen very quick, and we've seen that over the last number of lockdowns, that as soon as people sort of, you know, the, that buy-in can turn very quick, and I would like the government to be ahead of that and not, of and not react to it in if, terms if, of... If it isn't opening up pubs and restaurants for no, a few no, months not even yet, talking could about it be that. for things like, you know, allowing people to go outside five mm -hmm. kilometres if it's to take a walk up the hills or up the mountains, to allow kids to play Gaelic football and hurling and various other sports outdoors where it's ventilated. Pe people so want, people yeah. play golf and tennis and other things like that. See, people want hope. People are, are exhausted. The last six, seven weeks have been extremely taxing on society, especially for parents who had to manage their, their kids in homeschooling. People want hope. They want something to look forward to. We're not getting that same kind of language. And I think if nothing else, we can start talking. About, nobody's talking about the pubs. Nobody's talking. We, we understand that those two things aren't compatible. But simple qualities of life in terms of being able to meet your family, possibly take a staycation towards the middle or the end of the summer. Some but, seminars, we're just not hearing enough of that. And that's quite difficult for people at the minute, man. But we have to wait. We can can't tell people in a dishonest way or in a way nope. that's even, you know, that, that, that we can't depend on. We can't mislead people and we just don't know. No, no, I respect the that. big piece of hope over the next six to eight weeks is the vaccines, is more and more people getting vaccinated. You're hearing good stories of, I know someone who got a vaccination, all of those things. I think, it, you know, eight weeks from now, I hope that we will, everyone will know more people who have had a vaccination and that in itself will bring a certain measure of optimism, a certain measure that this could end, particularly if we see to, the continuation of that kind of data about the effect of the vaccines elsewhere that, that we've seen so far. But we do need to be clear and honest with people and not mislead them as no, well. No, I agree with you, Jennifer. And we'll actually be in a very good position because we'll be able to learn from the likes of Israel, the likes of the UK, what, what the works. So we'll be in a much stronger position when we do make those decisions. What will the GA be able to offer this year? And what will it learn as well from what happened last year? I think, listen, there's a lot of discussions over the last number of weeks in terms of the return to play. And everyone's very anxious, not just the GA, soccer, rugby, golf, tennis, you named it. Matt, the reality is it's not our decision in terms of when we start back. We're totally bound and always have been by public health guidelines and will continue to be in that vein. It's not the right time to, 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 to return to play. There's too many people involved. The risk level is too high. Too high. There will be a right time to return. And our job, and I'm still a member of the COVID advisor group, is to advise on when will that there time be a will be. will be a clampdown on socialising by teams after training? There always and was, and, and that goes with everything that we're trying to do. Just broke Matt, down a in few terms times of trying bad to bad consequences. Well, there was, a, there was a, a few things came at the, at the wrong time in terms of an overall lax in society, the pubs opening up and county finals. We have to learn from that. It wasn't a, a blemish free record last year, but I think we learned an awful lot that we can return to play safely in terms of kids, especially, and we, we can Jennifer, do that with. 
with, with I think good, it's good really confidence. important to, to compliment the GAA on quite how well they have managed things so far. And they're an organisation who need financial support as much as anything else. Others have been able to get TV revenues and that with competitions. The GAA will need support. They have worked well in the past and I know that they will continue and there yeah. will be a there will be something this and year. We're ready to go back. You see, the yeah. reality is we spent an awful lot of time last year trying to devise safe protocols. We've road tested them. When we get the green light, we're ready to go. Okay, thank you very much. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in tonight's discussions, emotional support is available on these confidential 24-hour free national helplines. Aware at 1800 80 48 48, Pieta at 1800 247 247, and the Samaritans at 116 123. So that is all we have time for on tonight's programme. Our thanks to Jennifer Carolyn McNeil and Dick Clerken. I'll be back on Today FM tomorrow afternoon on the radio, back here at the slightly later time of 10.15 tomorrow night. So for now, stay safe, stay home. Good night. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.